Welcome to Healing Hearts, Empowering Critical Care Providers. The information provided in this podcast is general in nature and is intended as a training tool for Children's Hospital and Medical Center personnel. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Complete information regarding the podcast, including its limitations on usage, is available under the episode description. Hello, and welcome to Healing Hearts. I'm Dr. Laurel Ortman, and I'm a cardiac intensivist at Children's Hospital and Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska. For the next two episodes, I'm going to be discussing low cardiac output syndrome, often abbreviated LCOS. I've talked about LCOS in every episode thus far because we always need to be watching for it in our postoperative patients. I thought it was time for LCOS to have its own episode. This is a big topic, and so I'm going to be splitting it in half. For this episode, we'll be talking about what LCOS is and how to monitor for it. In fact, this is a good episode to listen to to learn about how we monitor cardiac patients in the ICU, whatever their reason for admission is. In the following episode, I'll cover how we treat LCOS when it occurs. So let's start with a disclaimer for this episode. There is low cardiac output syndrome, and then there is just low cardiac output. Low cardiac output syndrome refers to a very specific constellation of physiologic derangements that occur during the patient's first postoperative night. Low cardiac output without the syndrome just means that the patient has that, a cardiac output that is less than desired. That can occur during any point during a patient's hospital stay and for a wide variety of reasons that may have nothing to do with surgery. This episode will be focused on low cardiac output syndrome, that first postoperative night, but some of what you will learn can apply to any form of low cardiac output. What is LCOS? LCOS was first described in detail in the literature in 1975 when pediatric cardiac surgery for complex lesions was becoming more common. It's a transient condition that occurs after cardiopulmonary bypass where there is decreased systemic perfusion due to myocardial dysfunction. Poor heart muscle squeeze, known as systolic dysfunction, leads to signs of shock. But systolic dysfunction isn't the only problem. Diastolic dysfunction also exists. This means that the heart is stiff and has difficulty relaxing and filling with blood. In addition, there's vasoconstriction, so increased systemic vascular resistance. This increases the afterload to the unhappy heart. And there's an increase in pulmonary vascular resistance. The last effect of LCOS is capillary leak. The integrity of the vasculature is compromised, so fluid leaks out into the tissues. This causes both body and pulmonary edema. Why does this happen? This is all about inflammation. When a patient is put onto cardiopulmonary bypass, their blood comes into contact with the foreign material of the bypass circuit. This results in activation of the immune system that is designed to attack foreign invaders. There's also ischemia and reperfusion injury that causes inflammation with release of cytokines. This all causes complement activation, platelet activation, nitric oxide inhibition, and probably more molecular mechanisms that we haven't even discovered yet. Those details aren't important for our care at the bedside, but it's an important area of research. Now, all those cytokines aren't all just sitting around waiting to be released at the first sign of bypass. It takes time for these systems to fully activate. The peak time for LCOS is 6 to 12 hours after the end of bypass. That puts the worst of our troubles in the middle of the night, in what is sometimes called the post-pump slump. The good news is, if there's no further inflammatory stimulus, LCOS is largely over by 24 hours. It should be temporary. You just need to get you and your patient through it. 
However, if severe enough, LCOS can lead to cardiac arrest or death, so we need to be vigilant. If your patient is continuing to struggle more than 24 hours after surgery, it isn't standard LCOS. There should be a search for other causes, such as residual cardiac lesions or underlying myocardial dysfunction. Not all patients will get LCOS, and not all patients have the same risk. A thorough description of LCOS was published in the journal Circulation in 1995 and found a 24% incidence of LCOS in neonates after transposition of the great arteries repair. These infants had two risk factors that made the likelihood of LCOS higher than average, very young age and long bypass time. If you have an older patient with a less complex heart surgery, their risk is going to be less. Having preoperative myocardial dysfunction or single ventricle puts that patient at higher risk. But bypass can cause LCOS in anyone. I've had one teenager with a simple atrial septal defect repair develop LCOS their first postoperative night. So always be on the lookout for it. Now let's talk about what LCOS looks like. We usually don't directly measure cardiac output in the pediatric ICU. So LCOS is largely a clinical diagnosis we make at the bedside. There's actually a lot we can talk about in this section because we have so many ways to monitor patients and every ICU has different monitoring capabilities. I won't be able to cover all possibilities for monitoring, but I'll talk about the most common. I'll start with basic vital signs and physical exam. LCOS is a form of shock, which early on at least is compensated. And what's one of the first vital sign changes in any kind of compensated shock? Tachycardia. Initially, that may be the only aberration, but assessing heart rate after heart surgery gets tricky for several reasons. One, the risk factors for LCOS are the same risk factors for postoperative arrhythmias. So if our patient is tachycardic, one of our first tasks is to decide if it is sinus tachycardia or an arrhythmia. Junctional ectopic tachycardia, or JET, is the most common tachyarrhythmia in the first postoperative night. So listen to my JET episode for some tricks on how to decide what the rhythm is. If you decide it is sinus, then you need to think about LCOS. The second reason why relying on heart rate can be tricky is that postoperative patients are frequently on sedatives. The use of dexmedetomine in the postoperative period is becoming increasingly common in the U.S., and at our institution, almost all patients come out of the OR with a dexmedetomidine drip running. One of the major effects of dexmedetomidine is slowing of the heart rate. So if your patient is on it, they may not be able to mount a normal heart rate response to LCOS. Number three, sinus node dysfunction can happen after cardiac surgery. The sinus node is a pacemaker for the heart, and thus determines how slow or fast the heart rate is. In sinus node dysfunction, the sinus node is unable to mount an appropriate heart rate response to what is going on physiologically. This may prevent tachycardia with LCOS. So if your patient isn't tachycardic, that doesn't mean they don't have LCOS, but if they do have sinus tachycardia, there's a good chance they do. The fourth reason heart rate can be difficult vital sign to interpret in the postoperative period is that the patient just had their chest open. This hurts, and even though we have our patient on pain medications, they can still be in pain. They also have tubes and lines that weren't there in the morning, and they haven't eaten since the night before. Despite all this, be cautious about blaming tachycardia on pain or agitation. If the patient is hypertensive, crying, furrowing their brow, or giving you other signs, treat for pain and agitation. But tachycardia without other signs of distress is unlikely to be caused by pain. Let's move on to blood pressure as a sign of LCOS. 
Patients with LCOS can have hypotension, but this may be a late sign. Our bodies have amazing compensatory mechanisms to try and keep perfusing our vital organs and maintain our blood pressure. So LCOS can exist with a normal or even elevated blood pressure. One of those mechanisms is vasoconstriction, which brings us to the physical exam. Vasoconstriction of less important organs is one of the early compensatory mechanisms in shock, in addition to tachycardia. One of those less important organs is the skin and subcutaneous tissue, with the skin blood vessels constricting, so there's more blood to send to important organs, such as the heart and brain. Thus, the skin gets cool, the capillary refill prolongs, and modeling happens. The first thing I do when I get a call to evaluate a patient in the middle of the night is put my hand on their foot. Is it cold or warm? It's simple, but it gives me a lot of information. Cool extremities and prolonged capillary refill may be LCOS. This concept of shunting blood away from skin and towards more vital organs helps us understand how to use regional oximetry monitoring, more commonly known as NEARS. Not every institution uses NEARS monitoring, but enough do, I'm going to spend some time talking about it. Keeping it as simple as I can, NEARS monitors measure the percent oxygen saturation of the venous blood under the probe. Venous saturation tells us what percentage of oxygen is being extracted from the blood. So, if the body is vasoconstricting and sending less blood to the area under the NEARS probe, the tissues will have to extract a greater percentage of the delivered oxygen, and the venous saturation will be lower. When a tissue is less perfused, the venous saturation and thus the NEARS drop. In all the institutions I have worked, we have monitored NEARS in two places, on the forehead and on the back. The back monitor is often called a renal monitor. However, in many patients, the kidneys are deeper than the probe can reach, and what is really being monitored is the subcutaneous tissue. So why monitor those two places? When cardiac output drops, the body begins to vasoconstrict to the tissue underneath the back probe because it is not as important as the brain. The back nearest value will begin to drop, while the nearest value for the head stays steady. If you see this pattern, lower back nearest with a maintained head nearest, that means that something is going on and the body is trying to redistribute oxygen to the most important organs. It doesn't tell you exactly what is going on, but it's giving you a warning that your patient's cardiac output may be dropping. This concept of shunting blood away from the skin and towards important organs also affects another one of our vital signs, temperature. With vasoconstriction, skin temperature drops and it becomes harder for the body to get rid of heat. So if you take a skin or axillary temperature, it may be low to normal, but the central temperature will be higher. If you're taking care of a cardiac patient and they have an unexplained tachycardia, or you have reason to be concerned about fever, take a rectal temperature. Because it is harder for the body to get rid of heat, a central fever may not be from infection, but may actually be a sign of low cardiac output. In fact, some centers use the difference between the skin temperature and the central temperature as a measure of perfusion. The farther apart these temperatures are, the more they are concerned about the patient's cardiac output. I'm not gonna say much about respiratory rate as a vital sign to monitor, as I'm presuming that most of our patients at high risk for LCOS will be intubated, and we are controlling the respiratory rate. If they are not intubated, they may have tachypnea and increased work of breathing as a reaction to decreased perfusion and oxygen delivery to the tissues. The final vital sign I'll mention is pulse oximetry. If your patient has two ventricles and normal saturations, 
there usually isn't a change to your pulse ox, though hypotension can cause the pulse ox to drop some due to decreased lung perfusion. It may also have trouble reading. Nothing gets me to the bedside faster than hearing the pulse ox isn't picking up. However, if your patient has only one ventricle and thus is a total mixing lesion, the arterial saturations can drop with LCOS. This is due to a decreased mixed venous saturation, which we'll talk about in a minute. I do talk about decreased mixed venous saturation as a reason for worsened cyanosis in single ventricles in the Norwood episode, so check that out. So we've talked about physical exam and vital signs. Let's talk about laboratory tests. No laboratory test is necessary for the diagnosis of LCOS. And we should be wary of being falsely reassured with normal labs when our patient clinically looks unwell. But there are some tests that can add more data to support a diagnosis. The two big ones are mixed venous saturation and lactic acid. The mixed venous saturation is the oxygen saturation of the blood returning to the heart from the body. Under usual circumstances, the body tissues extract about 25% of the oxygen that is delivered to it. So if your arterial saturation is 100%, your mixed venous saturation is going to be around 75%. If your heart is delivering less oxygen because of low cardiac output, the tissues have to extract a greater percentage of what is delivered, so the venous saturation drops. So if your patient has two ventricles and the pulse oximetry is reading 100%, and the venous saturation is 50%, that's an indication that there isn't enough oxygen being delivered which can be due to low cardiac output. This mixed venous saturation is most often measured in the superior vena cava, or the right atrium in a two-ventricle heart. But what if your patient only has one ventricle? Their baseline saturations are gonna be in the 70s, so an acceptable venous saturation will be in the 50s, or 25% less. Be careful about where you are measuring this, though. If you had a, a right atrial line, the venous saturation will be inaccurate since this is a total mixing lesion and you will get red blood coming back from the lungs in your sample. The SVC is really the best, best place to get a mixed venous saturation in a single ventricle patient. Sometimes an inferior vena cava line is the best we can do. I try to avoid using a line in the IBC to measure venous saturation. The blood returning from the kidneys has a higher saturation and the venous blood from the liver is quite low. Depending on where the tip of the catheter is, you can get a false reading. Notice that mixed venous saturation is telling you something similar to the NIRS monitor. While NIRS is measuring renal saturation, the mixed venous saturation is telling you about the whole body. The two measurements are associated and often used interchangeably. The advantage of NIRS is it's a continuous reading and doesn't require a blood draw. There are continuous venous saturation monitors, but those are much less common outside of ECMO. Lactic acid is another laboratory that is frequently monitored in our postoperative patients. Lactic acid is produced by anaerobic metabolism when the cells are not getting enough perfusion or oxygen. We generally consider anything above two to be abnormal and concerning for LCOS, but lactic acidosis can be a late sign, so it can be normal even when the perfusion is decreased. And that's why we tend to monitor so many different things in our patients. It's not common that every vital sign, every laboratory test, and their entire physical exam is abnormal. Some things will worry you, and some may reassure you. Honestly, I'm a bit of a pessimist, and I'm always thinking about the worst-case scenario. So if any of what we have talked about is not perfect, I'm going to be watching that patient very closely. In this episode, we have talked a lot about how to monitor our patients for LCOS. 
And really, this is applicable to most ICU patients, regardless of why they are admitted. In the next episode, I'll get back specifically to postoperative LCOS and discuss what we do about it. See you then. For more information about Children's Hospital and Medical Center, visit childrensomaha.org. Thanks for listening to Healing Hearts, empowering critical care providers.